to the Bioinformatics Chat. This is Roman Chupiaka. So this episode is going to be somewhat different from what you're used to. If you have listened to the podcast before, in that usually I invite some guests who are authors of the papers and we discuss their papers together. But this time, this is going to be just me and my commentary on some things that I learned recently and some papers that I've read. So let me know what you think about this experiment. You can find my email address on the website, bioinformatics.chat. And uh, also this episode is going to be more structured than usual, and there will be several sections. You can find the sections and their timestamps in the show notes on bioinformatics.chat. And so you can skip directly to the sections that uh, you're most interested in, if you want to. Okay, so. Today I will touch on two papers. Both are about a little specific expression, and this is going to be our main topic today. And so the papers are, uh, first, a powerful and flexible statistical framework for testing hypotheses of a little specific gene expression from RNA-seq data by uh, Daniel Scali and co-authors. And the second paper is effect of read mapping biases on detecting allele-specific expression from RNA sequencing data by Jacob Degna. I also want to give a shout-out to a talk by John Marioni on allele-specific expression and ETTL. Again, you can find the links to both papers and the talk on the website. And um, I, re- I really recommend watching the talk if you have time. This episode and the talk won't overlap that much, and the talk is uh, really, really interesting, and uh, I learned a lot from it. So we humans and many other organisms are diploid creatures, meaning that the majority of our cells have two sets of chromosomes. There are certain exceptions to this. So, for example, there are sex chromosomes that are not strictly like paired in uh, human males, for example. Uh, there's also aneuploidy. But in general, like the, this is normally so. And so this means that for every gene, there is a copy of the gene on the other chromosome. So there are potentially two copies of this gene, and each of the two copies have a potential to be expressed. So we can ask, are these two copies of the gene expressed on the same level or not? Do they produce the same amount of RNA? And if the two chromosomes were identical, there would be no reason for this not to be true. There would be no reason for one copy of the chromosome, if it were an identical copy, to produce more RNA in this particular locus than the other identical chromosome. And I have to qualify that by identical chromosomes, I don't mean just their sequence, because there is more to the chromosome than its sequence. There's also the chromatin configuration, the sort of the spatial structure. There are various epigenetic and other chemical modifications, like methylation, 
DNA methylation. There are epigenetic modifications to the chromatin itself, to the histones, and the position of the chromosome in the cell might also matter. But if all these factors were identical, there would be no reason to expect the genes to be expressed on different levels. But of course, things are never identical. And so allele-specific expression, which is what this is called when the two copies of the gene produce different amounts of RNA, so they're expressed on different levels, this actually does happen. And uh, we may ask, why would this happen? So we can think of a few different reasons. First explanation is genetic. So there are regions on the chromosome that affect the expression of the other regions on the same chromosome. These are called cis-regulatory elements, where cis is C-I-S, it means on the same chromosome. So examples of these regulatory regions are gene promoters, gene enhancers, and gene silencers. Now, these are the regions where we might observe genetic variation between the two chromosomes. So the two copies of the promoter region differ maybe by one nucleotide because there is a single nucleotide polymorphism there. And because of this, one promoter is just better at its job than the other promoter, and that causes its gene to be expressed more. So this is one cause of a little specific expression, is genetic variation. And this genetic variation actually happens like normally outside of the coding sequence of the gene. This is not about the gene itself. This is about the other regions that may be close to the coding sequence, maybe not so close, that affect the level at which the uh, gene is transcribed. The second reason we can think about is epigenetic. So we know that things like DNA methylation or various like histone methylations or acetylations, they can affect how much a gene is expressed. And the third reason is technical. So what we think amounts to a little specific expression may not actually be a little specific expression. It may be just an artifact of how we are trying to measure the little specific expression. And obviously we have to account for that. We have to pay attention to these possible technical artifacts so that when we claim a little specific expression, we can be sure it is actually a little specific expression. And so the papers we will be discussing today deal with these issues. So first, how do we measure a little specific expression? Second, how do we correct for various technical artifacts and biases so that we know that uh, we are dealing with uh, a fair assessment of expression levels? And the third thing is how much do these expression levels have to differ for us to declare sort of a statistically significant, a little specific expression. All right, so how do we detect a little specific expression? For that, we need to be able to measure a gene expression. And nowadays, the most commonplace method to measure gene expression seems to be RNA-seq. RNA sequencing. So the way that works 
is we reverse transcribe RNA to DNA, then we sequence DNA, and then we map our reads onto the genome or transcriptome and count them. And uh, the more reads we get that map to a certain gene, the higher the expression of the gene probably is. Now, this all works if we want to measure like gene expression in general. But if we want to measure a little specific expression, we need to have some way to distinguish the reads coming from each allele or from each chromosome. If the two genes have identical sequences, it is impossible to distinguish between them using RNA-seq, simply because the reads will map to both chromosomes identically well. That doesn't mean that there is no allele-specific expression going on, because allele-specific expression fundamentally is about the physical RNA molecules, and the physical RNA molecules, they come from one of the two chromosomes. So even if their sequences are identical, they have a particular physical history. And if we knew that history, we could say that out of all these molecules, this fraction comes from allele 1, and this comes from allele 2, even though both alleles are sort of identical. But simply by sequencing, by reading the sequences of these RNA molecules, we cannot tell where they come from. But that doesn't necessarily mean there is no allele-specific expression. On the other hand, if there are differences, such as single nucleotide polymorphisms between the two alleles, then we can look at the reads that overlap the SNP and see what SNP allele that read has. So imagine we have a SNP which is A on one allele, one chromosome, and C on the other chromosome. And for every read that covers that SNP, we can see if on that particular position, each read contains A or C. And if it contains an A, then we count it as belonging to the first chromosome. And if it contains a C, then we count it towards the second chromosome. Now, there is a second subtly different way to measure a little specific expression. Instead of uh, mapping the reads onto the same genome and uh, simply looking at the genotype of the reads themselves, if we have the both genomes, both haplotypes, we could just try to map the read onto the both haplotypes and see where it maps better. And uh, if it maps better to like the genome of the first chromosome, the sequence of the first chromosome, then we count it towards the first chromosome, or allele 1. If it maps better to the sequence of the second chromosome, we count it towards allele 2. So these two ways are somewhat different. Why, why does that matter? Well, first of all, the second way is not always possible. So the second way assumes we know the uh, sequences of both chromosomes. And uh, sometimes it is true. So a bit later, I will talk about the experimental setup that uh, Scali and co-authors did in their paper. And that is some quite clever setup where they did know exact sequences of both uh, haplotypes. But if we are doing just a normal experiment in humans, there's a high chance that all we know 
is just the reference human genome, which is uh, somewhat dissimilar to like both chromosomes in an average person. So which case is better? Well, if we have uh, two different genomes that we can map onto, it means we can consider not just single nucleotide polymorphisms, but we could also automatically account for structural variations like indel. That will happen automatically. We don't need to do anything for that. Another benefit to mapping onto two different genomes is that this potentially reduces yeah, mapping bias. So consider the situation when we map everything to the reference human genome. And the reference human genome for every SNP, it contains only one allele of that SNP, which is the reference allele. Therefore, if we have a heterozygous gene in this particular human, where one allele of the gene is the reference allele and the other allele is the alternative allele. And we can expect that the reads containing the reference allele will map better under the genome in general than the um, reads with the alternative allele. And hence we have a um, mapping bias towards the reference allele. So if we have two genomes for each haplotype, that may reduce the mapping bias. And uh, in theory, we could construct those uh, genomes from RNA-seq data itself. So in theory, we could take, for example, the reference human genome, and we can use RNA-seq to uh, infer both haplotypes, also potentially infer the phasing information, the phasing information means that we know which SNPs uh, co-occur on the same chromosome. So if we have two SNPs, one AC and the other one is like AT, there are two possible situations. It could be AA on one chromosome, CT on the other, or it could be AT on the one chromosome and uh, CA on the other. So if these two SNPs are close enough that they're covered by common RNA-seq reads, we could infer the phasing information. And if they're not that close enough, then we don't actually care about phasing information that much. All we need is just two haploid genomes consistent with our RNA-seq data. One other thing I want to mention is the role of alternative splicing. So this is another way in which allele-specific expression may manifest. It could be that the two alleles are expressed on the same level, but they're actually spliced differently. But that may look like allele-specific expression in our analysis. Because imagine there is a SNP, let's say an A slash C SNP. A is the reference allele, C is the alternative allele, and we have this uh, heterozygous gene in our sample then some reads will contain the A allele and some reads will contain the C allele. But also imagine that the um, chromosome that contains the C allele, a lot of the time that C allele gets spliced out during RNA splicing. Well, that would make it appear as if there are much fewer reads coming from allele 2 than coming from allele 1 because we observe much more reads that contain allele A than containing allele C. But that simply happens because all the other reads coming from chromosome 2 
do not contain that SNP. It could be that the two genes on the whole have equal expression, or even gene 2 may have a higher expression. But that expression happens mostly for a different isoform, which doesn't contain the SNP we're looking at. So we just have to keep this in mind when we build models for a little specific expression. I already mentioned one source of mapping bias, which is reference allele bias. And it occurs because the reads containing the reference allele are more likely to map to the genome which itself contains reference alleles, than the reads containing the alternative alleles. Now, this is not the only mapping bias. So, for example, another mapping bias can occur because there may be homologous versions of this gene somewhere else in the genome, and they may actually resemble this gene with the alternative allele. So whenever we have a uh, transcript with the alternative allele, it might also map just as well to some other region. That's one explanation that has been offered. But there might be also sequencing biases. It could be that um, transcripts from one allele are somehow more likely to be sequenced than the transcripts from the other allele. Not, not because of their quantity, but because of their base composition, the sequence. In any case, it would be nice to have a control, some kind of data set where we know there is no a little specific expression going on so that we can calibrate our methods and we can see like if some SNPs are inherently biased, we can just remove them from consideration. So creating controls for mapping biases is actually quite easy. We simply generate artificial RNA-seq data and then we can pass the data through our analysis. And because we know that we have generated like exactly balanced data, we can see how well our analysis recovers and reflects that balance. Or maybe our analysis indicates the uh, allele-specific expression where clearly our data generation process had none. And this way we can detect SNPs that are biased during mapping, that have mapping biases. But what about the sequencing biases? That we obviously cannot resolve through data generation. And so there is a very clever idea that appears in uh, Scali's paper, I think. And the idea is to sequence not RNA, but sequence DNA, genomic DNA. Because each cell hopefully contains exactly one copy, one instance of each uh, allele, we know that there is no allele-specific expression of the genomic DNA going on. And so we can expect that uh, the expression of uh, genomic DNA measured in this way will be exactly the same. So we sequence genomic DNA and we'll pass it through our analysis and look at the results. And again, if any SNPs are uh, very biased towards one or the other allele, we can just remove them from consideration. So I've said before that when detecting allele-specific expression, it is nice if you know the exact haploid genomes of uh, each chromosome, because then you can simply map all the reads to 
one or the other genome, well, to both genomes and see where it fits better. I also described a computational procedure to derive these haploid genomes, although I'm not quite sure if there is a available software to do that. But Scali and co-authors in their paper worked around this in a clever way by doing their experiment on yeast. So what you need to know about the baker's yeast or Saccharomyces cerevisiae is that it has two forms. It has a haploid form and a diploid form. So they took two haploid forms, different strains, but both are well-known strains for which the uh, genomes are published. And they made a diploid hybrid from these two strains. And uh, the strains, they had different mating types. This is sort of a sex for yeast. So one was type A and the other was type alpha and only yeast with uh, two different mating types can mate. So this way they knew that all the diploid yeast cells had to have one haploid genome from one strain and the other haploid genome from the other strain. And this way they knew exactly the sequences of the chromosomes. And then they measured a little specific expression in uh, this diploid hybrid of the two strains. Now let's talk about the statistical models that uh, Skelly employs in his paper to determine a little specific expression. And the aim of these models, well, there are two main aims. First is to find and detect the SNPs that are biased and should be excluded from the analysis. And the second aim is how to use the rest of the SNPs, the unbiased SNPs, to detect a little specific expression. And the reason why this second question is non-trivial is because we have to impose some kind of threshold. How much variation between the two alleles is to be expected purely by chance or technical variability? How much of the difference is actually needed to constitute an evidence for allele-specific expression? To that effect, Scali employs three different statistical models. The first model is exactly to detect the bias SNPs. The second model is to analyze the control case that we talked about before. We sequence the DNA data and we learn from the DNA data how much variability we can expect purely by chance or from technical variation. And this is needed to calibrate our model. And in the third model, we actually analyze the RNA-seq data and we use what we learned in the first two models, so from the first model we learned which SNPs to avoid and which SNPs to look at, from the second model we learned how much variation is normal, and therefore in the third model we can use those insights to find which SNPs actually exhibit a little specific expression in the RNA-seq data. So these three models have many commonalities. They sort of play on the same theme. The first commonality is the way they analyze RNA-seq data, the way they extract expression data from RNA-seq data. They do it by counting SNP coverage. For every SNP that is heterozygous in the sample, they count how many reads contain 
allele 1 of the SNP and how many reads contain allele 2 of the SNP. They compare the two and they infer the relative expression of the two alleles. And this may seem quite obvious from what we talked before, but actually this is not the only way to infer expression levels. The main alternative I see to this is something like RSM model. If you're not familiar with the RSM model but would like to learn more about it, I actually have a blog post that explains how it works, and I will link to it in the show notes. But basically, it is a generative Bayesian model that explains how RNA-seq data is generated. And uh, I see two main advantages, theoretical advantages, of why RSM might be better than the simplistic model proposed by Scali. And I say theoretical advantages because I haven't actually done any measurements. It could be that Scali's model works better in practice. But at least in theory, I can see two arguments for the RSM model. The first argument has to do with mapping bias. So one of the sources of mapping bias in Scali's model is that we find the most likely mapping for each read and we discard all other potential mappings. In our SEM model, we actually we try to incorporate several best mappings through a uh, statistical model. And so the RSM model is more robust to those homologous regions that may interfere with our analysis. The second reason has to do with closely related SNPs. Scali's model assumes that SNP coverages are conditionally independent within one gene, conditional on, on the gene and its expression. But that actually depends on how closely the SNPs are located. If two SNPs are very closely located in the gene, then many reads will cover both of those SNPs. And so these two SNPs will be correlated more than predicted by the model. The RSM model does not have this problem because it doesn't look at individual SNPs. It simply tries to find out for every read where that read might come from and with what probability. So this was the first commonality among Scali's models that the gene expression is quantified by SNP coverage. Now, these SNP coverages, they have to be somehow averaged within every gene, because ultimately we're interested in gene expression, not SNP expression. And the second commonality that I want to talk about is the way uh, this coverage data is averaged across the whole gene. So one way to do that would be to assume a binomial model. The binomial model says that we have certain probability that a read comes from allele 1. That probability is denoted P, and it could be, let's say, 0.7. 0.7. Therefore, 0.3 is the probability that every read comes from the uh, allele 2. Then we simply fit all the SNPs to the same binomial model with the same P, and we infer the probability P, which is most consistent with uh, all the SNPs in the gene. Scali actually employs a more flexible model where each SNP is allowed to have its own P as long as all the probabilities within the gene come from the same prior distribution, and that distribution is the beta distribution. 
So the whole model is beta binomial. And this allows to account for overdispersion, which is um, a very frequent phenomenon in genomics data. When the count data exhibit variation, variance higher than would be predicted by Poisson or binomial models. The third common theme among Scali's models is usage of mixture distributions. So both the first model that deals with bias SNPs and the third model, which deals with RNA-seq data, make use of mixture distributions. And mixture distribution arises when you have two subpopulations with uh, very different distributions within themselves. In the first case, the subpopulation are uh, biased SNPs and unbiased SNPs. And in the third case, in the third model, the model for RNA-seq data, the two subpopulations are genes with allele-specific expressions and genes with uh, non-allele-specific expression. Now that we discuss these common themes, explaining individual models is going to be much simpler. So the first model, the model for identifying the bias SNPs is simply a mixture of two beta binomial distributions. And I already explained what a mixture is and beta binomial is, so um, this should be straightforward. The model for genomic DNA data is a single beta binomial model. The reason why there is no mixture is because in the genomic DNA data, we assume we got rid of all the biased SNPs, and therefore there should be no allele-specific expression. So all the data should fit the same model. What this model allows us to do is to learn the parameters of beta binomial distribution that describes the genes without allele-specific expression. Now these parameters then plugged into the third model, the model for RNA-seq data, which is a mixture of two distributions. Both distributions are beta binomial, but they use different parameters for the beta distribution. So the um, beta binomial distribution for non-allele-specific expressed genes uses the exact parameters learned from the second model. But then there is the other subpopulation, the other component of the mixture model that uses different parameters for the beta distribution, and these parameters are actually learned from the data. They have a certain prior on them, but they are learned from the data. And these parameters describe how much, essentially, allele-specific expression is going on in the experiment. The way the second and the third models are combined together, uh, learning the parameters from the second model and substituting into the third model, this is called the empirical base. And this is not the only way to do things. Actually, this is considered just an optimization and more sort of theoretically proper way to do that is full base. This is when we actually plug the whole second model into the third model. So the second model allows us to learn not just the values of the parameters of beta distribution, but the distribution over those parameters. Right, So we have two parameters that describe a beta distribution. And of course, the model cannot tell us the exact value. So the way Scali does it is he just takes the median values from those distributions. But we don't have to settle for median values. We can take the full distributions and make them priors for the values used in the third uh, model. 
So I'm not sure how much more complicated this would make uh, Scali's model or Scali's code. And so empirical base is used as an optimization where having a full Bayesian model is, um, for some reasons, not practical. But this is just something I wanted to point out, that it would be a pure approach to have a combined full Bayesian model for these things. And actually, you could even go further and include the first model as well as as a uh, prior. So you would detect that uh, some SNPs are biased with some probability, and according to that probability, you would include or, or not include, or like include with that weight into the final model. Okay, so this is all I wanted to say on the subject of a specific expression for today. I hope you found it useful. Until next time.